Thank you, Amy. What a blessing to be here today. Thank you for that. It's good to see you today. And if you have little ones up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can exit at this time to the foyer where their teacher will meet them and they can head downstairs. Just follow the herd if you're new up through grade four or you can keep them with you. It's perfectly fine as well. We love kids and we'd love to have them with you if you'd like. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Will you do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are in a continued study through 1 and 2 Corinthians. We are at 1 Corinthians 9 now, in particular, as Paul is directing the church to deal with issues there in Corinth. He's talking about freedom in Christ. And that has really been our topic as we work through chapter 8. And we talked about freedom in Christ and the problem that they were having there in Corinth with wanting to do whatever they wanted to do with no impingement on their freedom, and Paul had some correction to bring to bear. So I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read through verse 18 together, allow the Holy Spirit to begin His work as we look into His Word. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse 8, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Verse 8, or verse 9 rather, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar, verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, verse 15. But I have used none of these things. And I'm not willing these things so that they, I'm not writing these things so that they will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's stop right there. Uh, last time together, as it is our habit, we'll just do a quick review. Last time together, we finished through verse 11. We saw the context of the passage, and that context is Paul using himself as an illustration. He's going to show that he had some freedom, he had some liberty, 
And this is really very much illustrative of, of chapter 8, where they had liberty, they had freedom. And so he's going to say, I have some freedom, I have liberty that I could have chosen, but I didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because someone could have been offended. And that really is kind of the sum of chapter 9. And the, and the freedom he could have chosen was the right to monetary support from the church. He had the right to expect the Corinthian church to pay him money for his ministry and provide for his needs, and we looked at that. But Paul chose to be a tent maker all of his life, to earn his own living and provide for his own needs, never exercising the right he had to ask for support here in Corinth. Now, Paul uses the first 14 verses to give the reasons why he had the freedom to choose to be supported by the church, which, of course, has application for the modern church as well, as we saw last time. And then he's going to use verses 15 through 18 to show why he chose to limit his freedom. And now remember, Paul is springing off the attitude of some in the Corinthian church who were saying, hey, you know, we're, we're free to do anything we want. We can go eat meat offered to idols. We can uh, go up to one of the pagan feasts. We don't have to do what they do, but we can still eat their food. Uh, if someone doesn't like that, then that's just their problem. That's not our problem. They need to grow up. And so that attitude was prevalent in the Corinthian church, which is why Paul is beginning to take this to task as he's worked through numerous issues in the church. And so coming off that attitude, which Paul had to correct, he has a few opening remarks to establish his authority. So he says this, verse Corinthians 9, 1, look there if you would, and we'll just briefly sum up what we've looked at as we're going to kind of conclude these thoughts today, Lord willing. Look at verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So really, Paul is kind of summing up this. He's just saying, listen, I understand this freedom thing. I understand freedom to do whatever I want. Uh, Paul says, I'm qualified to understand freedom in Christ. I'm an apostle, and you're my, you're my mark of that apostleship. Don't think you understand, Paul says, my liberty like, uh, don't you think I understand, Paul says, my liberty like you do, maybe a little better than you do. So then Paul says, as an apostle, don't I have liberty? And the answer is, of course, he does. And then beginning in verse 3, Paul makes the transition to the questions brought to him by the Corinthians. Verse 3 says this, My defense to those who examine me is this. And so right away, from the text, you kind of extract that uh, he's addressing some questions from the church in Corinth, which is the issue here as you started in chapter 7. It is a Q&A. You just kind of read the text. You can extract the questions from the text and then what you know about uh, the background there at Corinth and some of the context there. You can see Paul's answers and how they apply. And that's what we're doing here. So he addresses questions from the church. The questions appear to have an edge on them because of the words that are used there. People are asking questions in a critical, accusatory manner. And so uh, they were questions concerning Paul's right to be supported by this church. So here in chapter 9, Paul is going to illustrate that freedom uh, to limit your freedom, and he's going to do that. Uh, but uh, we're going to come away with principles for supporting a pastor, a missionary, a minister inside the church. And once again, I just preface this by saying this illustration is not about me. You uh, pay me more than I deserve, more than I would ask for. Uh, by uh, Jesus' grace, you've taken care of all our needs. So this is not an illustration for me. It's not a veiled way to do anything, okay? It's just simply teaching through the passage. We're in chapter 9, we're going to go through it, and we're going to get to chapter 10, and we're going to go through it just like we always do, okay? Uh, but we take away very important principles here uh, that are super important for the church to understand, and both in a, uh, a corrective manner and in a preventive manner to make sure that it doesn't fall into error. So, Paul says... Uh, chapter 9, he's going to illustrate that, and Paul answers the general question, then why is a minister worthy of support, but worthy of the support of the church? So beginning in verse 4, we're going to get eight examples uh, Paul will give to answer their critical questions, to give them an illustration of what it looks like to limit your freedom. So that's Paul's emphasis, I'm going to limit my freedom, our understanding, what it looks like, and the reasons why 
uh, the church is to take care of those who minister in them. So he's going to go through these reasons and really saying at the end, just to foreshadow a little bit, he's saying, hey, you know, I have the same liberty as you do. I understand this liberty thing. I'm an apostle, perhaps a little bit more than you do. Perhaps you don't understand how I've been limiting my freedom. So he illustrates it. Am I not also free? Am I not an apostle? And as an apostle, I have liberty. I have freedom to do whatever I want to do. And one of those things I have the freedom to do, he says, is to ask you to support me. And yet, just kind of summing up, I set my liberty aside. I'm, I set my freedom aside because I don't want to offend somebody. I'm not demanding you to do anything that I haven't done myself. So when he says, listen, you've got some freedom, but there are some limitations to your freedom. That limitation is love as you look at someone else who may be harmed by what your freedom, uh, your freedom being acted on. And so Paul says, listen, this is what I've been doing. You can illustrate then, he says, what that looks like. Now, we saw that. He addresses really three questions from the church, kind of get an idea, kind of pull out of the text, and then he's going to answer them and then get to the heart of the issue of his freedom, starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4, if you would, with me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Of course, as we saw last time, a little sarcasm there. Paul uh, says, you know, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? And of course, because their whole issue was about drinking and eating in temples and all of that stuff, he just kind of takes that to task first. And, and their question really extracted from the text is this. Shouldn't you take care, you know, they're asking Paul this. Shouldn't you take care of yourself? I mean, why should we be burdened? And of course, Paul's answer is, you know, I have some needs just like you do, and I have the right to ask you to care for them. So uh, that's the relevant principle for today in the church. There's some needs. Church is obligated to take care of them. Verse 5, he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And again, Paul says, you know, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? And, and once again, the question criticism from the church was likely, hey, you know, can't you stay single? You're, you're much more useful as a single guy. We can get a lot more out of you, a lot cheaper uh, for you to come and go. And Paul's answer is, listen, I have the right to support from you, and not only for me, but if I brought along a family, I have that right as well. So Paul says, you know, that's my liberty. That's my right to ask that of you. I haven't asked that of you, but it's my right. And that's a relevant principle, again, that we saw for the church today. It's the church's responsibility to support its pastors, its missionaries, its ministers, its staff. And then Paul got a little sarcastic again, and he says, look at verse 6, or do, not, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? So the question criticism probably from the Corinthian church that we saw last time is kind of a repeat, kind of said in a different way. You know, why can't you just work and take care of yourself? I mean, you have a good job. Uh, you can make a good living as a tanner. And Paul's answer to them is this. I have the freedom to refrain from working a secular job. I have that freedom. And so does Barnabas, although we have it. And you've implied that perhaps maybe we shouldn't. But Paul says, I have that freedom to exercise uh, that uh, freedom in your presence and to come and expect you to take care of me. And I don't have to work another job on top of that. And again, that's a principle that applies today. The modern church has that obligation for its staff. Now, Paul is giving these out by way of questions, but they are statements of fact. We went into them much more in depth last week, so I won't do that again. But Paul's giving out these by way of a question. Okay, don't I have the right? Uh, don't we have the right to refrain? Uh, don't I have the right to bring along a wife? Don't I have, uh, you know, I have some needs, some eating and drinking, things that have to be taken care of, basic things. Don't I have that? But what is really the issue is they're statements of fact. The answers are always yes, I do. And Paul's point is I have the freedom to do this, see. I have the freedom to do this. I have the freedom to have this right among you. So don't get, don't get confused by perhaps the answer is no. The answer isn't no. The answer is an implied Yes, all the way through. Now look at, if you would, verses 7 through 11. Paul gives some examples now, and we're going to kind of work through them very quickly because we looked at them at, at length last time. 
And I give you a lot of supporting passages, and if you missed that, you can pick up with that uh, online. Now look at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So three examples, soldier, farmer, shepherd. We saw that. Uh, the reason he uses those examples really gives us the principle that we can pull from it. And that principle is, it's the usual custom. It's the usual custom. What custom? Well, that labor comes, that out of labor comes a living. Or uh, cared, you know, are cared for out of occupation. So as you apply yourself to these jobs, you're cared for by the fruit of those jobs. Same thing applies, Paul says, uh, as it relates to his ministry among them. Paul's obvious point, the same holds true for the servant of God. Easy illustration, servant of God to be equally cared for out of the occupation. It's Paul's right, it's the church's responsibility, it's how the world works. Okay, now let's look at verse 8. Paul says an interesting thing here. Verse 8, he says this, look in your copy of God's word. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So in other words, I'm not just talking about the human situation, okay? I'm not just speaking in human terms, just kind of drawing some illustrations up that don't connect, okay? I'm, I'm not just doing this to draw attention to human customs, human reasoning, and then Paul brings his fourth reason, and the example is this. The law of God gives us the same understanding. Look at verse 9. The law of God gives us the same understanding. That's Paul's example. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then Paul says this, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. And that's a quote out of Deuteronomy 25.4, and we looked at it last time. But the principle, number two here, is this. God is concerned about people, namely here, those who lead the church. He gave the rule, but he was thinking about people, not oxen. That's the point. Paul shows it to be a long-reaching biblical principle. Verses 10 and 11, we get two more reasons. Look at 10, if you would. As we just work our way verse by verse. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So two more examples. Plowmen, those are the guys who are planting. Threshers, those are the guys who are processing the harvested grain. So on both ends of it, he's just kind of bringing these guys out. And the reason he uses these examples is both of them have a hope for something in the future for their work. And indeed, it would come. Hope for the servant. So the servant serves, he plants a crop, he's looking for the hope of the, of the crop that would grow and the harvested crop. And the one who's threshing, of course, sees the harvested crop, he's doing his work, he's looking, he has a hope for something that's going to come later. It's indeed a sure hope. And so for Paul, principle number three for us, as he pulled that out, the minister has a right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward. Same exact thing. It's why Paul uses it as an illustration. That is the hope. Now look at verse 11. Paul makes a direct application here. And this is really shooting straight for the Corinthians. Okay? In other words, Paul says, using an agrarian metaphor, if we sowed life, transforming, eternal, everlasting, permanent things, is it too much, once again, some sarcasm, is it so much to ask to reap material, temporary, monetary, passing things from you? The example is, is this unreasonable, see? And that's what he means when he says, listen, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you. Is that unreasonable? Paul says, is that a big deal for you to do that? And the implication is, no, of course it isn't. It shouldn't be anyway. And the principle really is, number four, we saw last time, be generous. Just be generous. Now look, if you would, at verse 12, just the first part of verse 12, 
We'll look at the second part after we see verses 13 and 14. And you'll see why we're going to do that in a minute. We're just skipping over the last part of verse 12 because it begins this other emphasis of why Paul's limiting his freedom. But I want you to see the reasons, the examples, and the principles first. So look at the first part of verse 12, and then we'll skip over um, verse, and we'll go to verse 13 and 14, and then we'll obviously take in verse 15. So look at verse 12. If others share the right over you, do not we more. If others share the right over you, do not we more. There was obviously an example somewhere, maybe Apollos, maybe one of the, the pastors there. Peter undoubtedly was being supported by them because Paul already mentioned his name. He mentioned some of the brothers, of, the half-brothers of Jesus were receiving some support. Maybe it was James and Jude. So some others were being supported at some level. And because Paul had planted the church in Corinth, he was the first pastor there, perhaps a spiritual father for many of them. He's the one who led them to faith. Uh, that's why he says, do we not more? And then this is a very important thing that helps us understand that we're on the right track. Paul says, he uses the word, if others, here it is, share the right. If others share the right over you, do not we more. And share the right just confirms to us in our understanding that Paul is really setting a standard of conduct. We share the right just like they do, okay? Uh, what do these others share with Paul? What's the right? Uh, the right is the right to support, understand? Don't we share the right just like they do? If others, if others are sharing the right over you, do not we more? The right is that we have the right to support from the church, Paul says. Some of them are already receiving support. Don't I share that right with them? And the answer is yes. And once again, we've said that right from the beginning, okay? There's a freedom, there's a right Paul has, and he's using his own uh, restraint. He's just going to say, listen, I'm not going to exercise that right, but it is a right that I have, and others are exercising that right over you as well. So it just confirms our understanding is straight on. So generosity, again, that's the principle here. It, you're already sharing there. We share the right over you. And so once again, uh, that's what we see so clearly in a great example. I want you to look, if you would, because we have some time. 2 Corinthians 8, if you would. Look at 2 Corinthians 8. Just hold your finger here and go to 2 Corinthians 8. And once again, I want to, um, I want to give you the opportunity to, to look at that yourself. And, and if you were with us a number of years ago, we, have, we went through these passages just so thoroughly. So what I'll do is just kind of illustrate them uh, and just kind of give you a sketch of what you can pick out there. But we will get here as we work through these books, and we'll go through them again uh, in very in-depth. And so if you're desiring more of that, it's coming. So look at verse 1, if you would, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, Now, brethren, uh, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, once again, just to kind of set the stage, Paul is using some other church as an illustration for this Corinthian church. And so he's just kind of drawing out some of the trademarks here of the church. They're obvious here, so I won't have to pull them out for you. But obviously they're, they're having some trouble. Obviously they're not well off. Uh, they are having some affliction, and yet they have a tremendous attitude. Look at verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave their, of their own accord... So within their means and beyond their means, verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now these people became the poster church, if you will, of what it looks like to give in the way Paul is talking about, a generous type of giving, okay? And then he says there's verse 5, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So in other words, they were committed to the Lord and that overflowed in what they were doing and they gave themselves to us as well, Paul says. 
a lot different attitude, I might point out, than what he's bumping into in Corinth. Because you're going to see a lot of disrespect, a lot of, a lot of uh, criticism, a lot of uh, arrogance here that Paul deals with over and over again. A couple of things I think that we can pull out of the passage without getting too deep into it. These are very important things, I think, because they really help illustrate what we're talking about. Here it is. And you can see these in your notes. It's always God's will that we be generous. And Paul's illustration here earlier, as we worked through verse 11, you know, is it if we sowed spiritual things to you in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we more? Just, you know, continue to be generous, Paul says. You, you need to be generous. Number two, it's always God's will that we be sacrificial. Because the illustration here, obviously, from 2 Corinthians 8, is that's exactly what they were doing. And they became the poster church, if you will, about what that looks like. So just kind of plaster them around the church and look. That's what, the, that's what they look like. They're sacrificial. They're generous. The greatest example of giving and sacrificing that ever was, was God who gave his unspeakable gift. And so that becomes, obviously, uh, the flow from which we have the resource to do what we need to do. Would you say it was generous, that sacrifice of the Lord? How much giving could he give? Well, he gave everything, didn't he? And, of course, how much grace did God give? Well, we see he gives all grace. And how much mercy? Well, all mercy. And uh, what, what kind of inheritance do you as Christians inherit from Christ? Well, all things, right? You see, God only knows one way to give, and that's generously. That becomes the example that the Macedonian churches picked up on and becomes the example for Paul as he, as he draws the attention here in 2 Corinthians to this Corinthian church that's having some trouble uh, being generous. Now, look at verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 8. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So, what's happening here? Well, there was a start in this church in Corinth to begin to give in this way, to begin to give generously, to begin to give sacrificially, but it kind of fizzled out. And you know why it fizzled out? Well, it's not hard to figure it out as you start in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Critical spirit, uh, pride, you know, problem uh, you know, uh, uh, with a bunch of things, immorality in the church. We saw you know, backbiting and, and, and factions and all that. Guess what? That affects giving. Did you know that? As soon as the church gets discontent, as soon as somebody starts sowing some, some discord, the church has a problem. And, and that's what was happening here, see? Titus came, he encouraged them, they started, then they fizzled. And so he says, listen, I, you know, we urge Titus. He already started this with you. He's going to come back, and he's going to remind you about what you're supposed to be doing and how it's supposed to work. And so Titus had to go back in, and he had to do some encouraging. And then Paul says, listen, look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness, by the way, just as a footnote, all those gifts come from the Lord. He always gives generously. See, all earnestness and utterance and knowledge and faith. He gives that way, see, and Paul reminds them, you abound in those things because God has given that generously to you. He always gives grace because we're never worthy, and he gives it in abundance. And in the love, he says, we inspired in you. And Paul says, you know, we taught you how to love. We showed you what it looked like to love. See that you abound in this gracious work as well. What does Paul mean? Well, just this. All these other gracious gifts have been given to you, so you participate in this gracious work, this giving generously, sacrificially, all of that. You participate in that as well. You've been given these things, now give. And then verse 8, it says, but I, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So that becomes right up in their face, doesn't it? I mean, in other words, this is a freedom that you have. You have a freedom to participate this way. The freedom to show your love through your gracious generosity, Paul says to them. So Paul tells him, look around you. See, others are earnestly participating. Do you love, Paul says? Then show it. 
And I think you can see that. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, Paul goes on to verse 10 and 11 and reminds them of what they said they would do and then to follow through. Now pick up in verse 13, if you would, 2 Corinthians 8. Now, again, just look at the attitude of the church by what Paul has to say, okay? For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Now, that statement reveals a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in the Corinthian church, doesn't it? In other words, it's kind of embarrassing for them, isn't it? I mean, that Paul actually had to say that? If you're giving generously, are you worried that somebody else is going to be benefiting too much? If you're giving sacrificially and you remember how the Lord gave to you, are you worried then about what's going on with your giving? You wouldn't be, but see, they're not, are they? So Paul actually has to say a very embarrassing thing to them. He says, listen, just in case you're thinking this, which if Paul says it, then they were, this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. He knows that the grumbling is going to be going on, okay? They fizzled out. There's still some factions. There's still some problems, still some arrogance. There's still some backbiting going on. He says, listen, you're going to be grumbling. Understand, this is, this is not this that you're going to think for your affliction and others' ease. Verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their, their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be a quality. Verse 15, as it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. In other words, here's the thing. You have what you have because God provided it. Perhaps through someone else, perhaps through a great job opportunity that he dropped in your lap, uh, perhaps through uh, some series of events and investment that did well, whatever it is, but it, it came about because the Lord made it happen. Because he's gracious like that, he owns all of it, he gives it out as he sees fit. And once again, we went through all of this as we went through these passages a couple of years ago. And that just kind of sums up some of the things. You have what you have because the Lord was gracious. And however he happened to work it out, whether it's because he gave you a sharp mind and you used that sharp mind in a great job and you ended up coming in uh, to good money or perhaps somebody else took care of you and, and provided you a gift or whatever it was or your parents were wealthy or whatever it was. The fact of the matter, Paul says to them, you have what you have because God gave it to you. Okay, he put it in your lap, he owns it all, he gives it out as he sees fit. So we can see why we have what we have and the opportunities we will have to be generous with it, see. And that's the point. It's just so straightforward, see. I've given it to you so that when you won't have too much and other people will have what they need, and then when they have an abundance, they'll be able to give, and other, you may have a need, and it just kind of works out that way, and that's the way the Lord takes care of it. And, and by the way, just as a footnote, as you may imagine, in this economy, we get a lot of calls at the church from people who want us to pay their bills. Probably two or three times a week, we have people call from the community and say, hey, you know, I need help with my rent, I need help with my electric, I need help with groceries, I need help with my water bill. And in the, in the wintertime, I mean, it's unbelievable for people to have their heat on and all that. And this is a passage I talk to them about, by the way, just so that they know. Now, when they call, they want me to just say yes. They don't want a lecture. And they don't really get a lecture, they just get a, a lesson. I, first thing I ask them, are you, are you involved regularly with a fellowship somewhere in the Lynchburg area? Do you worship? And then if they tell me yes, then I ask who their pastor is. And if they can't tell me who their pastor, what their pastor's name is, I know they're just kind of pulling a church out of the hat because they're going through the phone book. All right, and this is obvious to us, okay? So they're going through the phone book. If they can't give me their pastor, then I kind of I have an idea what's probably going on. But the fact of the matter is I just say, listen, why did you call us? Well, I think that the church should be generous. Okay, why should we be generous? Well, because you're Christians. Well, that's good. I, I appreciate that you connect the fact that if we're a believer, we we're be generous. But I want you to know, this is what I say, that we don't sell anything here. Okay? So th there's no profit from which, like Walmart or Target, we donate 5% or 10% or whatever it is. 
Did you know that we have what we have to help people? Because some people in our congregation don't use everything they have every month and they give it away so that we can have it to give people who are in need. And at that point, it's quiet. And they're probably looking for the next phone number in the phone book. They're not listening to me anymore. But I go ahead, until they hang up, I'm, I'm still going to give it to them. Okay? So these are, the, these are the principles that I give out. And then I say, you know, we could perhaps help you, but we really need to know you. Okay? We have a lot of need, as I, said, I say to them. You may well imagine. In our church, we have a lot of need. We have people who lose their jobs. We have people who have unexpected bills. Things come up. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens. We, we help people who we have relationships with because the Lord says that when he gives a little extra to somebody, they can help somebody else, and then that person who got helped eventually will have some extra, and they can help the next person along, and that's how the, the body of Christ is supposed to work. So if you're connected to a, a spiritual body somewhere in Lynchburg, get back connected with them because guess what? They have the same obligation to you as you do to them. And then if you... You know, if you don't have a body that you're fellowshipping with, then come and worship with us. And let us know your need, and perhaps we can help. And I'm not sure that anyone has ever shown up who received that lecture, but they get it anyway. And I've probably given it out, this is no exaggeration, 50 times since I've been here. So people hear it, and then sometimes we get calls back a couple years later, it's the same person because I keep a record of their names, so it's, a, it's not a new name to me. And I can kind of look through there, and we get, they get the same lecture again. So pretty soon it's going to sink in, I hope. But anyway, th these are very practical principles. They apply to the church in Corinth. They apply to the modern church today. They apply to the, 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 the mature believer who's having some troubles and thinks he maybe shouldn't give or, you know, somebody talked to him about some certain thing and now they've got this in their mind and, that, you know, it's all got interrupted. Paul says, I'm going to send Tim, uh, Titus over there. You started, but you, you kind of fizzled out. We're going to get you encouraged again. Listen, keep, keep, on, keep on being generous. Keep on being sacrificial. You've been receiving from the Lord his unspeakable gift. You got it in Christ. You continue to get it in mercy. You get it in grace. You get it in, in uh, all these things that he's given you, all the inheritance you get from Christ, all things. This all belongs to you. So out of that resource, out of that understanding of what it looks like, then Paul says, give generously. That's his point, 1 Corinthians 9. That's his point here. Okay? So, very, very straightforward. Now, if you would, flip back to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13. And we're going to pick up there. Okay? Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Now, we're skipping over the last part of verse 12, and I'll tell you why, and you, you'll see why in just a second. So just skip to verse 13 with me. Do you not know that those who perform sacred ser services eat the food of the temple, and those who attended regularly to the altar had their share from the altar? Now, this is example number eight Paul is pulling out here. And just like in verses 8 through 10, Paul dips back into the Old Testament and shows that these principles are long-reaching. When he dipped back and he said, you know, don't muzzle the ox that's treading out the grain, excuse me, he wasn't talking about uh, an issue that dealt with oxen, okay? He was actually dealing with people in that passage in Deuteronomy. And once again, that's an old principle that reaches all the way back into the Old Testament, and God wasn't concerned about oxen at that point, and not that he doesn't love animals, but he wasn't concerned about oxen. He was talking about people. He's talking about people now, Paul says, in verses 8 through 10. And then he gets up here to verses 13 and 14, and he says, listen, here's another Old Testament model, and that's the example. The Old Testament worship set up the model for today. Old Testament worship set up the model for today. And although all of Paul's examples are powerful and very, very straightforward and easy to understand, I think he really seems to save his most compelling examples and his principles for last. That fourth principle of being generous and this fifth principle of it's always been God's plan that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. It started all the way back in the old economy and it works its way all the way up till now. 
We don't have priests. We don't have Levites. We don't have all those things. We don't have the sacrificial system. But the basic principles there apply. That's Paul's connection. And this is what would happen in the old economy, just to kind of give you a context here. The people are, are bringing offerings. You can see really this broken down for you in the book of Leviticus. If you're unclear about how all these things work out, read the book of Leviticus. I know sometimes that's where you fizzle out when you're going you know, through the Bible in a year. You get to Leviticus, like, oh my goodness. You know, it's hard to get through there. But here's where it's all laid out, and it's very, very clear then how it worked. But the first was a burnt offering. I'll just give you, I'll give you a Cliff's notes of it. The first was a burnt offering. So a man comes with a burnt offering. Now this alone was the one that was totally burned up. Okay? The only thing left would be some of the entrails in the hide. And we find out in Leviticus that the hide then was given to the priest to be sold to provide income for the priest. So burnt offering, everything's burned up except some of the entrails and the hide. The hide's given to the priest. Second offering was the sin offering. The, only the fat was burned here on the altar. The hide and all the meat was burned outside the camp. But a portion of that belonged to the priest for him to eat. A third offering was the guilt offering. You see the same thing here, whether it was a dove, and they go through a number of different things that can be part of the guilt offering. A dove or grain or flour or a ram or other animal. Uh, part of it was sacrificed, part was burned, and the rest was for the priest. Fourth offering was the grain offering. They brought flour and oil, sometimes made into cakes, uh, it, along with wine. He offered in thankfulness to the Lord for his blessing. It was just a, an overabundance of thankfulness towards the Lord. It was brought. A small token of it was burned. The rest of it went to the priest. Fifth offering was the peace offering. It was shared between the priest and the worshiper. It had a symbolic meaning. It brought to mind the peace between God and man, which was accomplished by God in the sacrifice and all the stuff that was connected there, and so it was shared. And so those are the five offerings. There's a sixth offering, of course, and it, you want to be technical. It had to do with the ordination of the priest. But those five, I think, give us the idea that Paul's seeking to point out. In every case, there was something for the priest in, in order that his livelihood, his support, his, sus, his sustenance might come out of his service. That's Paul's illustration. That's his, as, that's his example. Uh, the priest would receive the first fruits of barley and wheat and grapes and figs and pomegranates, olives, honey, all of those things. So, some of the first fruits of everybody's crop went to the priesthood to support them uh, in the Old Testament. They received one-tenth of the Levitical tithe. They received one-fiftieth of any crop that was harvested. And the same uh, for those who were baking. A certain amount of the baking had to go to the priest. God set up a tenth, which is just a part, remember, uh, that we looked at, of what the Jews were required to give to go to the support of the temple. 23 and a third percent, actually, of income uh, was set aside from the Jew to support the theocracy and all the things God had set up. But part of that went to the support of the temple and theocracy. So when Paul says, then, back, back in verse 13, when Paul says, do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Paul says, don't you know this? You know this. If, if you perhaps are Jewish, this is very clear, if you weren't Jewish, if you're Gentile, which many of these in the Corinthian church were, then he makes it clear that they did. Okay? Just drawing their minds back from the new covenant to the old economy and just reminding them that the Lord set up the support of the priest to come right out of that ministry. And then he connects it to today when he says, look at verse 14. So in case you're like, well, what's he talking about that for? Well, here's why he's talking about it. So also... The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Super straightforward. That's easy to understand. This is not human reason. This is not Old Testament proverbs kind of being regenerated. This has not just been, re, you know, this is reiterated from the Lord and said, listen, I set up the model. This is what it looks like in the Old Testament, and I'm going to bring it right up into the New Testament time. This is probably a, you know, a direct statement perhaps 
to Paul from the Lord because he says, also the Lord directed, so perhaps it was given directly to Paul and he gives it to the church. Not really sure how that came about, but it's been reiterated by the Lord itself. So the example is here, Old Testament worship set up the model for what's going on today, okay? And that's a very compelling example and a very clear example and a very simple principle, principle five, it's always been God's way that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. That's always been how God has worked it out. He set up the example and here it is. Deuteronomy, he says, muzzle not the ox was treading out the corn. He wasn't talking about oxen, he was talking about people, okay? So Paul gave them eight reasons why he had the freedom and once again, back to the reason why he's going through this. Becomes very practical for the church, but Paul's bringing this to, the, to light so they can understand the type of freedom to limit his freedom he's been exercising. And they may not even be aware of what's been going on. He had the freedom to be supported by the church. They translate to today. Paul says, I have the right, I have the freedom to expect the Corinthian church to support me because principle one, it's the usual custom. Principle two, God's concerned about those who lead the church. Principle three, the minister has the right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward. Principle four, believers are supposed to be marked by this trait, being generous, because God has been so generous with them. And principle five, it's always been God's way that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. Paul says, listen, here it is. Here are the reasons, here's the principles of why I could have asked for support from you and had the right to it. So Paul gives them those reasons from which we easily extracted principles. And now look at the last part of verse 12. Let's skip back up there now. Now we can look at it, okay? And here is... Uh, this example of the limiting of freedom, uh, the reason why he went through all of this for the church. Okay, look at verse 12, if you would, last part of verse 12. Nevertheless, he says this, we did not use this right, see where I am, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And then look at the verse, first part of verse 15, okay, because it connects directly to this. But I have used none of these things. See those two? Okay, Paul went through all of this. He gave a bunch of examples. He gave a bunch of principles. He says, nevertheless, in spite of all of that, in spite of everything I've told you, all the reasons I gave you, whatever it was, we didn't use this right. We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And I've used none of these things, verse 15. Paul said, I gave you eight reasons, five principles. I haven't used any of them. I never took anything from you, even though I had the right to do it, the freedom to do it. And it just kind of reiterates this illustration of the freedom to limit your freedom. Because that's what Paul wants them to understand. In all of their freedom and uninhibited freedom, I'll do what I want, I don't care what anybody thinks about it, I'm going to go eat, I'm going to go drink, and I don't care because it's my freedom to do it in Christ. Paul says, listen, you have to care because it impacts other people. So he just reiterates all this, and Paul says, don't you think I know a little bit about what I'm asking you to do in relation to eating and drinking? He goes, I know. He says, I know a lot more about it than you do. Paul says, I've never taken anything from you, even though I had the right to do it. You know why? Because love for you limited the exercise of my liberty to do whatever I wanted. And I'll foreshadow again a little bit. We're going to see this in just a moment. But Paul felt it would be a hindrance, so he didn't take the right that he had. And that people, you know, that's his, that's his principle. It's illustrated here. As Christians, we have the right, rights that can be defended. Rights that we can stand up and say, I have the right to do this. I'm free in Christ. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. It doesn't give it as a direct positive command. It's just open. I can do it. And that could be a, defend, a tremendous defense. Just say, the Bible doesn't prohibit it. I'm allowed. It could be a tremendous defense of your right. But it's a right that can equally be set aside, see? Now, I want to look at the last part of verse 12 again here because it's important. Look there again, if you would. 
If others share the right over you, do not we more? In other words, you know, be generous. You, you're already doing this. Continue to be generous. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So he waived his right to support. And then he says this, we endure all things. He wants him to know a little bit about what's going on when he, when he exercises freedom to limit his freedom. And literally that word is to bear in silence or to bear without complaint. Paul says, we endure whatever is deprived. And he's already mentioned some of them, right? Didn't he? He mentioned uh, food and drink and not being able to take along a family or whatever. Whatever's deprived, okay? And he says to endure that silently without comment. That's the issue. And it's in the present active indicative. So it's important to understand this. He is continually enduring throughout his current ministry with them the absence of things that he has the right to and that he no doubt needs. That's how you can understand that. It's currently going on, Paul says. We endure all things. Continually enduring. Present active indicative. And then Paul says this. Look at this word. It's the word hindrance. Engopen. It's a noun, Greek noun, engopen. The word is a wartime word. It's an interesting word that Paul would use it. And it has to do with breaking up a road or a path to impede an enemy pursuit or attack. And the idea there behind that is this. Um, you could stop the advance of, of machinery of war, of supplies of war by creating obstacles, by destroying bridges, by blocking or pulling up the roads, things like that that would be normally done, still done today in wartime. Uh, bridges blown up and things put in the road so nobody can come through. Paul's use of it here then, he might say, look, I wouldn't do anything to chop up the highway or tear down a bridge by which the gospel is advancing to you. So Paul said, as he analyzes the church, he says, listen, I've chosen to limit my freedom. Because I think that in exercising my freedom, I would have thrown up a roadblock, I would have torn down a bridge, I would have torn up a road, I would have thrown something out there, an obstacle for the advancement of the gospel. Okay? And I don't want to do anything to make it difficult for you to accept the gospel. That's why he says, even though I have the right to your support, I don't want you to think that I'm in this for the money, so I'm going to set the right aside. And that's not a very good testimony for the Corinthian church, is it? Especially as we've seen eight reasons why they're supposed to be doing it and five principles. So he's not making an excuse that it's a good thing for the Corinthian church. He's just saying, my evaluation of you is this, that if you took, if you took me on a support, this would cause a huge hindrance to the gospel advancement there. It's a sad place for them to be, a very immature place. Now look at verse 15, because it carries the same emphasis, and we've already looked at 13 and 14. Okay, so look at verse 15. Paul's freedom and limited freedom. But I have used none of these things. In other words, I've excluded that right even though I have established it. He goes, I've already given you eight examples of why I have the right and five principles that apply to the church, but I've used none of them. And just referring to the eight examples, five principles, why the church is to support those who minister to her. He says, here's an example of somebody who has the right and sets it aside. That's me, Paul says. I've been doing this, and this is why I've been doing it. He says, I evaluate your, where you are in maturity I evaluated that as if I, if I push my right, which I have the right to do, he says, it's going to cause a problem for you. Now watch, Paul wants to lay aside, again, it doesn't speak highly of the Corinthian church, but again, it, it, it translates right into the modern church. It stays around the churches all the time. Look at this, Paul, Paul wants to lay aside any accusation of subterfuge, okay? Look, look at the next section, okay? Look at verse 15. I've used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. In other words, Paul wants to put to rest an accusation of saying one thing 
and meaning in other, okay? Which is why I cleared it up at the beginning when I began to preach this to you. I don't want you to think I'm saying one thing and meaning another. I'm just preaching the word to you, okay? And that's, this is what Paul is doing too. He's like, there's no double standard going on here, okay? Because he already has people there who are examining him from a very critical and accusatory point of view. And he has to make a defense from verse 3 for his actions, even though he shouldn't have to. He knows that somebody's going to say, undoubtedly, because he knows the church, I know why you're writing this stuff, Paul. You're saying, I don't want any money. I wouldn't take any money. I have a right to money, of course, and I want to give you eight examples and five principles of why I won't take it, even though I have the right to it. And then you're expecting that I'll say, oh, come on, Paul, take it. And then you'll say, Okay, if you insist. You see? I mean, that's, that's the, what's going on in the background. That's why Paul has to make it clear. I'm not writing these things so we've done so in my case. There's no subterfuge going on here, okay? You know, I, I'm not saying this so that you'll say, oh, go ahead, Paul, we really want you to because you made us feel bad. And, and he'll go, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead. He's like, no. And Paul knows he's going to have people accusing him of this, saying things like, you know, why, do you, why, do you say why are you saying this to us, Paul? Why have you written it? And Paul just says, well, I'm not seeking support. I haven't changed my approach one bit. I have freedom to limit my freedom. And I've done it to my own detriment. I've chosen not to require support from you in the past, and that's the way I'm going to keep it in the future. So he just, wants to un he just wants to take out the support for any of this accusation of, oh, you you're saying one thing and you want us to do something else. I mean, you're saying you love us and you don't want to support you, but you really do. As Paul says, I'm not doing that, okay? Remember Paul's description of he and Barnabas, perhaps uh, kind of illustrating that, you know, I've done this to my own detriment. He says, you know, to this present hour, Paul says, we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. Paul described himself and Barnabas and their ministry, okay? This is, this is how he described it in 1 Corinthians 4.11. To the present hour, he says, it's my freedom to do this this way. I don't want it any different. I don't expect it to change. I ch have chosen this because I love the church, Paul says, and I know where they are, and so I'm not going to do this because it's going to create a roadblock. It's going to tear up the road for the gospel. It's going to tear down a bridge for the gospel, and so I'm going to keep it just like it is. And, of course, there's lots of examples of statements like this from Paul, but I guess the one from 2 Corinthians 11.9, the most illustrative of Paul's freedom to limit his freedom because of the prevailing critical attitude in the church if you just read this with me on, on the screen for time, Paul says this. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Did I commit a sin, Paul says, without a sinful act on my behalf because I gave you the gospel but I didn't take support from you? Verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. Boy, is that, is that like right up in your sweet tea this morning or what? I mean, that's like right where they sit, right? What did I need? I, you know, when I was in need, well, what did he need? Well, he probably needed food on his table, right? And drink and a place to stay and clothing and necessary things, things we talked about already. Now, catch this. This is what Paul means when he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Look at verse 9. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, remember those guys? We, we already talked about them in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. 
And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. While he's ministering in Corinth, the church of Macedonia comes to him and takes care of his needs and provides for what the church in Corinth should have been provided for. So that's why he says, listen, I robbed other churches to minister to you. Did I commit a sin doing that when I humbled myself? Everything that was lacking, they took care of. Now, let's get back to verse 15. Okay, I, think, I don't think we could illustrate it any better. When Paul says, look, I've used none of these things, and I'm not writing to them, them so they'll be done in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man take, make my boast an empty one. And back in verse 15, really the core of the whole thing, it answers the question about Paul's attitude as he dealt with the church. So why have you set this right, you know, that other ministers share, in verse 12, aside? Look at verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And Paul is just expressing great emotion here. That's when he says it would be better for me to die. He just wants them to understand, in the strongest emotional terms that he can render, that he isn't telling them this so that they'll start to support him. He's made his decision to limit his freedom. And he'd rather die, and that's just Paul being as, as emotional as he can be, than for them to change and think somehow they need to do it. Paul knows where they are. He's dealing with them where they are. Out of his love for them, he's limited his freedom to his own detriment, and he doesn't want that to change. And he's just saying that in the strongest emotional terms he can render. It would be better for me to die, he says, than exercise my right to compensation when I know that there are people here in Corinth who are having a problem with me taking it. That's what he says. Even though they're wrong, which they are, even though he's given them eight examples and five principles to show it's the right thing to do and to help them grow and become mature. And he loves them enough not to let them remain in ignorance in their arrogant attitude. That's why he writes it, not so that they'll change what they're doing right now with Paul, but so they, he loves them enough to know, to help them get out of that ignorant place where they are and that arrogant attitude and move away from all of that and towards graciousness and towards... Uh, uh, sacrificialness and towards generosity, see. He also loves them enough not to put a hindrance to the gospel. So he loves them enough to give up his right until they grow. Because they're not where they need to be. And here's the thing. Paul setting his right aside isn't setting a standard for the church. Okay? In fact, at the end of Paul's ministry, he passes on to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He says this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul just kind of sums it up, and he just says, listen, as I'm now at the end of my ministry, the churches are becoming more mature. I've written a bunch of letters to them. Hopefully they're coming along, and Macedonian believers are already there because they became the poster and the example of what it looked like. But the churches are coming along, and Paul just makes this statement to Timothy. Here's what I want you to teach, Timothy. And then he gives this to Timothy. So he wasn't setting a standard of capitulating to critics in 1 Corinthians 9, okay? He's not capitulating to critics. He's not saying you're critical and you're right in being critical. None of that. In fact, just the opposite is true. It's embarrassing the things he has to say to them, see? He's just simply saying that it was his right to limit his freedom. And remember, the passage itself is an illustration of the believer's freedom to limit his freedom. It goes back to, verse, to chapter 8. You think you have the freedom to do whatever you want. You don't. You have to evaluate where other people around you are. And just from Paul's example, 
We're able to pull the reasons and the principles that are to guide the church in their obligation to take care of those who minister among her. And the reason why Paul uses himself as an example is to teach the church, if you really want to love the world and win them to Jesus, if you really want to do that, there may be some liberties you're going to have to set aside. Because some of the things that you have the right to say yes to will tear up the road that leads to the gospel and it'll knock down a bridge that leads to the gospel. If you really want to see the, the world come to Christ, there's going to be some freedom things that you could do that you're going to have to say no to. And if you, re, if you want to love your brothers and, and see them grow up, maybe there's some liberties you ought to set aside amongst them as well. Because some things that you have the right to say yes to will ruin them, ruin a brother or sister in Christ, as we saw last week. Some of your liberties will wound their conscience and cause them to go through a time where they are not effective and maybe drop down into sin again because of the things they see you do or cause them to stumble into a place where they're having a hard time getting back up. That really is the issue, isn't it? And when it comes right down to it, we learned a lot about the church, we learned a lot about its obligation, and we learned about, a lot about Paul's sacrifice in the Corinthian church. But not with every church, because the Macedonians came and took care of it. So it wasn't everybody. This church here, Paul had to limit his freedom. And that became the illustration for what it looked like for them as they exercised their freedom to go to the temple and eat meat and drink and whatever, and people were watching them and having a hard time with it. You know, maybe, Paul says, maybe you ought to be thinking before you do anything that you have the right to do about how that's going to affect those who are watching in the unredeemed world, and are you tearing up the path that leads to the gospel by what you allow, even though you're allowed to do it? And maybe you ought to look around the church and say, maybe there's some people who are going to have a hard time. They're going to stumble. They're going to be wounded. They may be ruined. And, of course, ruin is that permanent word in the English language, but not in the Greek. That's a, that's a place where you become unproductive for a time. Maybe I'm going to have to say no when I could say yes because I'm going to impact somebody else. And knowing that Christ died for them and brought them into a relationship with him really can motivate us to give up some freedom and thereby show them love and see them discipled and see them begin to grow. And that really is the issue. Okay? Now, as we get to the next verses, just really amazing verses, as we, um, Paul begins to talk about a little bit about his, what he can boast in, we're going to see that he has this one thing he can say, okay, this thing I'm doing because I'm limiting my freedom. I'm not going to boast because I can preach, because I have an obligation. I'm not going to boast uh, because of the gospel, because that's from the Lord. But I can say that this is what I'm determined to do among you. And this is a really great passage. We're going to save it for next time that we're together, because I really want to take some time with it. And then move into Paul as he deals with the unredeemed around him, limiting his freedom. And then he's going to move in chapter 10 to use the use Israel as an example of what limiting freedom looks like. So it's really rich study, of course, beloved, and a lot of application as we get into this that we can take away the Holy Spirit as at work as we desire him to be in our own lives and in our church. Let's pray and be dismissed. Father, we thank you tonight or this morning for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the clarity which Paul provides for the illustrations. We thank you for your Holy Spirit as it tutors us, as it brings to mind the things, attitudes perhaps, and and approaches and, and habits that we've had or uh, we're thinking about or have we allowed to get into our life that perhaps do not align with what we understand Paul's, uh, in Paul's principles. Lord, we, for the most part, Lord, we really want to pray for this issue of freedom as we do or do not do things that we're free to do from your word. 
and free to do because of our relationship to Christ and free to do because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we'll bring to mind those uh, things that are so important to you, the love uh, for others that limits our freedom. And Lord, help that to work its way in. You alone know all the application. You alone know all the freedom that's being exercised, all the things that are going on. You alone are aware of those things. And I pray that you'll bring to our heart, even right now by your Holy Spirit, a convicting thought, a, a word that would take us in the correct direction. Now that we've heard your word, we wish to respond to it in a way that's pleasing to you. That is our prayer as we are in your word each day, that we may see the things you've told us not to do and ask you to help us if we're doing poorly at it, and to see the things you've told us to do and ask you to help us if we're not doing them well. And Father, I pray that as we see your word, we react to it in the correct way. That's how you would have your word to be responded to. And I pray that you'll have your freedom to do that here. Now, Father, for tonight, as we get back into Joshua and John takes us uh, again into a marvelous book with so much application for today, Lord, we pray that you'll uh, speak through him, help us to respond correctly as you would see fit, be encouraged in the testimony times that go on tonight. And for the fellowship and all that will go on uh, this week, we pray your blessing on that. We'll accomplish all that you wish us to accomplish. Pray that those who know you will be faithful to, to our uh, number one commission, give out the gospel, make disciples. Lord, help us to never forget that we're left here to do that, to spread the good news. I pray that you'll give us more opportunity this week that we may respond in a way that brings about the planting of seed so that someone else perhaps can harvest as you water. And we give you praise today. And all God's people said, Amen.